Law and Disorder, the podcast that gets real with addiction, recovery, and everything in between. Hear the 360 degrees with your hosts, Tim, Disorder, and Joe, Law, with guest speakers specializing in every field related to why you just tuned in. Welcome to Law and Disorder, and remember, recovery is possible. Tim and Joe, it's all yours. Welcome to Law and Disorder. I'm Tim. And I'm Joe. Today's episode is about a uh, topic that many, well, all of you will be uh, familiar with, or if you're not familiar with it, it'll feel familiar to you. Yeah, I think uh, pretty much everybody's going to be able to relate to this in one way or another. Relatable was the word I was struggling to find. Yeah, I don't know how, how anybody in our audience won't be able to relate. Right. So today's topic is going to be the enabler. The enabler. Right. Who does the enabling. Yes. And before we even get going on this topic, I wanted to read the official definition of enabler. All right. Okay. So the definition of enabler would be a person who encourages or enables negative or self-destructive behavior in another. I think that pretty much sums it up, but it's a part of, do we realize at what point are we becoming an enabler? Yeah, I guess that's the uh, the tricky choice that a lot of people are confronted with. When are they being helpful to the, and obviously this applies to behaviors beyond addiction, but I think this is where we see it the most. So when is the loved one or the person being helpful to the addict, helping them possibly to kick their habit and recover and when are they making it so that... It's possible. Right? Yeah. They're making it so it's possible. Yeah, yeah. Just encouraging the addiction, whether they're aware of it or not. And there's also a second point of view, which would be from maybe a parent perspective. You have that natural instinct to protect. Right. Yeah. And then oftentimes that is enabling. It of course. In, yeah. So there's that perspective as well. It's very difficult. I know my... Uh, family struggled with it for years and years. It's a fine line. And I know a lot of parents, once they realize that they're enabling, then they they can transition straight to tough love. Right. Right. Yeah. Some parents are not able to do that. Right. And that's where the problem becomes exploited. (laughs) Yes. Well, I, uh, of course, I come down a little bit differently on the idea of tough love than I think prevalent um, the prevalent opinion about it is, and I, I'm very grateful that, uh, my parents were as tolerant with me as they were, um, my father in particular, but I won't dispute the fact that there was a lot of enabling that took place along the way that I capitalized on in order to use. Well, there's different levels of enabling, right? There's those levels that are kind of on the lower end, which would be Providing a place to stay, um, knowingly giving someone money, you know what they're going to do with it. Right. Yeah, those are on the lower end, even though they may have a large impact on the outcome. But then you have the extreme end of it, where where parents are actually going out and buying heroin for their loved one. 
Now that I'm not like that never took place in my life. And I actually can't say I've heard of many instances of that taking place, but I, I'm assuming you have. I have. Yeah. Wow. For sure. Yes. Wow. Yeah. I've I've heard of them driving them to pick it up. I've heard of them going and getting it themselves. What's the rationale? I th- I think they're just protecting them from being dope sick. That that dope sick is sold to the extent to the parent or loved one that they fear that like that's a great fear of theirs and they don't want to see someone go through that that they care for. And therefore they themselves are willing to actually go commit a felony, pick up the narcotic, drive with it in their car and deliver it to their loved one. I've heard it many times. That don't do that if you're no. listening at home. <laughs> there aren't many times where I'll say what to do and what not to do, but yeah, don't. probably not one of those things you want to do. No, man, that's such a, that is wow. But don't. if you if you go to the other side of it, they actually have clinics now where you can go and shoot up heroin. Do they around like in Michigan? Do they have? Those? I haven't heard of any in Michigan. I know further out east, there's uh, plenty of clinics. And I guess the reasoning behind that is they're going to use whether or not they're supplied the stuff or not, but they're doing it in a so-called healthy environment where they are shooting up with fresh needles, clean needles. So there's the different diseases that don't come into play. Surely there's Narcan on hand. Narcan on hand. Handle overdoses. Yes, exactly. And that's that's that protective bubble of using, we'll call it. But are we, is that enabling? I would say yes. But then my question, I guess, from there would be, is there good enabling and bad enabling? It almost, like you, I think you pointed out early on, and it was very wise, that there's kind of a spectrum of enabling here, right? It all begins with uh, acceptance, right? There's a, a uh, an acceptance that takes place by whoever does the enabling that this person is going to do it anyway. And that, that plays a major role. And if they think that they can allow them to use in a safe environment, I think the temptation as a parent with that natural instinct to protect, that comes in play. I guess it comes down to, I would think, comes down to statistics. Okay, if we're going to go that far, are they also pushing treatment, which I would have to assume they are. But what are the statistics, the success rates tied to a clinic or a bubble where you can, you know, go shoot up. There's probably not like many studies on that available at this point, at least in the United States. If these things are just beginning to crop up, hopefully there's some uh, analysis taking place at the same time. You would hope they're tracking it. They so, have to be, right? Right. So that's the extreme side of it, if you want to see it that way. But going back to uh, family and friends and whatnot, you hear all the time, hey, I need a ride over here, I need a ride over there. And people think it's, like, harmless, and, and they're actually being played, right? Oh, yeah. Once they figure out been played, they still continue to do it. Right. With hurt feelings and pride. <laughs> yes. Yet they continue for it. Or they find other ways. Right. right? Here's, here's some money, go Uber. Like, that's going to happen. Yeah. there. You know, I think we all went to high school with the kid whose mom said, I'd rather all the boys be here drinking at least I know they're safe, right? The enabling mother. Yeah, like that's where it starts. That's like I think the very first place you spot it. Yeah, like I, I, I don't know. That's a good point because that that definitely something that happens. Oh yeah. yeah, I think like every high school, every community has that. Yes, right. And I'm not here to judge 
that person. I'm not. There's a certain amount of rationale where it makes sense, right? Like, again, you have that protective, that desire to protect. And I think, I think there, it's kind of goes hand in hand with the live to fight another day mentality. That whole, I'll quit tomorrow. I'll go to rehab next week. And so therefore you say to yourself, okay, if I can just get them to next week safely, right. then maybe we have a shot. That makes sense. To a certain extent. To a certain extent. <laughs> it's, a, it's super tricky. Like, so it's a really difficult subject to delve into because I think people feel there's a strong emotional attachment to it because you are, we are in effect commenting on like everybody right now. Like everybody out there who has an addict in their life makes different decisions and has like different lines drawn, boundaries that they won't cross. But at the same time, that also allows for a certain amount of tolerance, right? So it's a really emotional subject for people, especially those who have lost a loved one. So they're looking at, did I do this wrong? Did I do that? Right? Right. And that becomes a, it's, it's something that they have to deal with the rest of their life. Yeah. Should I have allowed this person to stay in the home? Are they dead because I kicked them out? Right? And that's a really deep, heavy thought to wrestle with for the rest of your life. And I, I don't think there's a book written for it or a, a playbook for it. it. I think it's situational. I think, yes, situational. When we knew we were coming into this podcast to discuss this subject, situational was a word I intended to use. Okay. So I I agree with that. Okay. I didn't mean to steal your word. No, I'm glad. I, was, I, I had forgotten it. So I'm glad you used it <laughs> because it brings up, like, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly, that it is situational. That is very difficult to, we all have to create our own playbook, right? Like every NFL team has its own offense that it runs. Just yeah. like every family is going to have to have its own set of. There's no just carbon copy for everybody. Right, you can't. No. Every every circumstance is so different. Like, for, for example, where do you live? What kind of neighborhood do you live in? What does it mean if you put this person out of your home? Does it mean they just go stay with their brother? Does it mean they stay with their friend? Or does it mean they're literally on the streets? Or in a trap in a, house. In a trap house. Yeah, like so. It's a tough one. And I, and I want to say, given my experience, I think the biggest, and this pertains to you as well, because mm-hmm. you've gone through this, the biggest and most popular one would be when they get arrested and they are actively just, they're high. They come in high. So the parents come in and it, and like I said, it may be the first time they know that their loved one is using. It may not be. I've seen it where they will go to extreme measures to bail them out. I've seen houses put up. I've seen all kinds of things put up. So now you're risking your well-being, your 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 livelihood, banking on that an addict is going to stop using that hasn't even gone through detox. Those aren't good odds. Those are not good odds. But on the flip side, you know, I always advise let them sit. Simple as that. Let them sit, right? Uh, and we've we've talked about this before in prior episodes. I personally feel thirty to sixty days at a minimum. And you've gone the opposite route. You've done a couple, what, a night or something? And, and I've done like a lot of different one night stands. Yeah. So like you many, were, yeah, many one night stands. Yep. And you were bailed out. And in the end result, you you actually are in recovery here talking about it. Some of the other ones that I have seen throughout my career were not so lucky. So looking at that, that's that's one of the biggest examples that I can give in my field of where that enabling 
comes in. Yeah. And again, going back to the ideal that this is circumstantial, right? Even though I was bailed out by my father more than once, I won't say that I automatically would do the same for my own son in that situation. I, I don't know that I would, but I think there are certain details. For example, does he have a job? Like, is he going to lose his job? Is he going to lose his home? Does he have enough things going on for him that if I bail him out, maybe he can turn it around, right? It, 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 whereas if I leave him in there, he's for sure coming out in 60 days way behind the eight ball. So what you're, what you're talking about right now is a parallel to recovery. I guess what I'm saying is those life stressors, right? If you take away someone's job because you let them sit in jail, yeah. They, they come go? out, they got money problems. Yeah. And then what do they do? They go right back to a place where they can remove those stressors, right? Sure. I, I will say this, though. Even if he had a job, he had all these good things going for him, I wouldn't put up my house. Not not to just bail somebody out. I've seen it more than once. There's no way. I've seen it. Work it out with the judge. I'm not risking the home that I've invested years of my money into so that you can avoid... Because you might be going back anyway. And all when you bail somebody out, it doesn't mean they're like... Show up to court and they're done. Yeah. Like, you're just giving them a reprieve that could be completely unnecessary. Yeah. The, the, let the judge decide at that point. I agree. There's no way you could put up your livelihood and trust someone who's not in the right mental state of mind to make the right decision. Right. Yeah, I can't see it. But I've, I've seen it so many times. And I've seen it happen where they know that their loved one is going through, you know, rough times, addiction, they're using, full-blown. And it's a pattern already established, right? The, the pattern's there. All you're doing when you bail somebody out of jail, you know, for example, I was just spared some discomfort, right? Like I wasn't in Rikers, you know? I wasn't... I wasn't in imminent danger by remaining where I was at. In fact, I was inarguably safer where I was at than I would be returning to the streets, returning to where I had to go to use. You know, it's, I guess the more we talk about it, I have to admit, the more I lean toward being in agreement that you should probably generally just leave them in there. I'll give you a prime example. And right now we have... We have an inmate and she's been in, I believe, 22 days now. And she's all geeked about getting the Vivitrol injection. Uh, she believes that she gets sentenced like in a week or so. She strongly believes that she's going to rehab from jail. So we're talking under 30 days. Okay. Granted, in her, in her defense, she has been going to like all of our classes that we offer religious services, all, all of those things, and participating like wholeheartedly. She does have a positive attitude towards rehab, and she's looking forward to recovery. But I keep telling her, I can't see it. You know, not to discourage her in, in any way. I said, if I were you, I would beg the judge next week to give you an extra 30 days. Because you don't think she'll get sent to rehab? No, I think she will. What is it you don't see? I think the freedom will open the doors for her to do, maybe be tempted to do the wrong thing. I mean... Like jail, you're in jail. There's no way you're using. There's no way out. Rehab, 
is a whole different ballgame. They can just leave. Oh, I see. Yes. I see. Okay. But yeah, for example, TriCap, is it the same there? Can you just walk out of TriCap if you want? Some of them you can. Uh, it depends on which one she gets put in, placed in. And that is a huge factor. And I believe also it's a matter of how long. She's going to be sentenced to 60, 90 days, maybe six months. I don't think it's going to cut it. Seen it, seen it too many times. They have that chance to bail and they do. Yes. And it's, it has a lot to do with that initial time period, 22 days. Okay. She came in high. Right. Okay. So cut that 22 days down to, you know, take seven days off for the detox period. So she's still got another. Yeah. She's got 80 days to go. (laughs) 15. She's thinking. Yeah. 15 days. Her, her brain has had to maybe start thinking logically. 90 days is a big milestone when it comes to that, when it comes to like, comes to the rewiring of one's brain, the, all the. I, I would agree. I, I see it. You know, when we have discussions, the inmates, you can tell the difference between 30 days and 90 days. And what defines that is the short term goals. If they're realistic, you know, they've been in there longer. It makes sense. Yeah. If they still want to get out and be the next rap star, they probably need more time. You're right. Yep. Why don't you sit another 180 days and yeah. uh, work on them lyrics? You're not ready yet. Right. They keep refining those bars. Uh, yeah. Have you ever seen someone go and ask the judge for more jail time? I've seen them ask to be held in custody until they have finished the Vivitrol program, which means they would have been normally released prior to receiving the injection other than like an orientation. And obviously you have blood work and stuff like that, that has to be done. They have to see the doctor. So you're talking about a seven to 10 day maximum stay on top of what they would have had. I've seen that. No one's asked for another 30 though. Huh? No, no, that's something that's... though. At least that shows some kind of like awareness of what's really going on with them wanting that shot. Well, I think what they're they're seeing is it's working. You know, they're they're seeing people that they're in jail with being released, getting the injection, and not coming back a week later, or not reading about them in the newspaper. And I, and I think that really hits home when they continually come back, and these other people are not because they're they're succeeding in their recovery. It's hard to argue with the results of that program. I don't I don't see how anyone could argue with it. Yeah. I really don't. It's got to be among the most like successful things any jail has done or could do. Oh, I, I, I totally agree. I track those statistics as we talked about before, and they're quite amazing. They really are. So back on the enabling, would you say parents are the biggest victims of... Offenders. Or we'll say offenders. <laughs> Definitely. That was my experience. Well, another example would be like paying bills that they shouldn't have paid, right? Because I was using my money for drugs, they might pay a car note, right? Don't you? Or a phone bill. Or a phone bill. Which is a big no-no because you just enabled contact. Right. (laughs) Well, you know, the addicts will get that phone bill paid usually because it's cheaper Mm -hmm. and they need to make contact with their dealer, right? That's Mm -hmm. true. But bigger things like car notes or Rent. rent. Yeah. Like that. Those are huge Like, I can kind of see how somebody would do it once, right? Like, they just want to give so-and-so the benefit of the doubt. It's your kid. You're going to help out. But the pattern 
when you just know they're working you every month and the numbers don't add up. You know what they make. You know what they take home. You know what their expenses are. And it's always some other like catastrophe that has gobbled up their funds. Right. right? And then when you're like, well, okay, just, you know, take your card to the mechanic and I'll pay the mechanic. No, I, can you give the money to me? Right, right, right. Don't well, give it to the mechanic. Well, the mechanic said he works for cash yeah. only. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And exactly. he doesn't trust anybody but me. To right, <laughs> right. He will only accept money from me. He will. No, that's a good point because those are the things that really do make a huge difference because now you're talking, you just gave someone who needs money for drugs more money for drugs. One, I remember one thing my parents did was they would buy me um, gift cards to Speedway. You and, sold them, didn't you? It, well, Are you that yes dude on no. Facebook that wants $20 no, for No, I never did <laughs> I never would do it on Facebook. Hey, just, first uh, off, that takes too long. And yeah. secondly, it's embarrassing, right? Well, on a side note, for all you that do that, a $20 gift card for $20. Yeah. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> no, it's not a good deal. No. The, so the go, incentive's not there. Yeah, so, so go ahead. Okay, so they would, and they think, like, because, you know, I would work them for gas all the time. I need to get to work. If I, if I don't have gas, how do I get to work? And how do I not pay all these bills you're going to pay anyway, right? So they would, instead of giving me gas money, would give me these Speedway cards. And I would use them frequently to buy Newports. Ah, uh-huh, cigarettes. And, yeah, and I would exchange those. So when they realized something wasn't adding up with the gas cards, they stopped buying the merchandise cards and would just get the fuel cards. Ah. So now... Oh, so they were on top of you. They were trying to be. Yeah. But even then, you know, there were enough speedways around where I would just meet so-and-so and fill up their car with gas. It was never like as good as having cash because you're going to always lose a little bit in that transaction, right? Like cash is king. But it's cash you never had to begin with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it, it was like enough. It was something for me to work with. Right? Like, come on, I'll put $20 in your car and I'll owe you whatever and help me out. Yeah. And that's a, that's a tough decision. Like, as a parent, you don't want your kid missing work when they're already going through, you know, these circumstances and you give them money, you know where that's going. So you try to do the good thing and fight a, find an alternate route to get them what they need and they're still abusing it. At what point, as a parent, do you cut them off? circumstantial yeah i believe so i mean i know plenty of people who have done that just cold turkey don't call me till you're clean and and i think about that and it's like how it worked right and i'll I'll just take one example he realized real quick that his daughter was playing him against his wife and they weren't together or they were they were they were together married yep she was smart enough to catch them at different times in the day when she knew they weren't together (laughs) yeah Yeah. and then she said uh she was trying to get money and she called him he says nope and so she called him you know she calls mom mom tells her no so then she calls dad back with a different sob story and tells dad what a what a bitch mom is right and he's like what did you just say about my wife oh wow yeah so that was it he's like you know what let's just do this a little different. Don't call me or your mother until you're clean. And that worked. And do you, you know, know how you, long it was? I don't know, but you know who I'm talking about. Oh, really? Yes, you you know who I'm talking about. Um, he he talks about it quite often uh, when parents are struggling. He, he always fills them in on his take of how things should go. 
Huh. In his defense, it worked, right? And do you worry as a parent? I'm sure he did. Of course. Yeah. But do you worry and not have the guilt when you do that? Or do you just keep enabling and you still car- you're still carrying the guilt? Right. I think you just got to do what you think is best, whatever you think is right, and live with it. I mean, you really have no choice. At least do what you think the right thing is, you know? I Don't do what... Uh, I, I, a, lot of, a lot of people do the easy thing and not the right thing. Yeah, and I think the most important thing that we can say about enabling is you need to set your boundaries based off of what you are comfortable with, worst case scenario outcome. I think that's very important. When you say, I can live with myself if the worst case scenario happens and I was paying rent or I was buying them food. I did that in quotations because that's not what, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Can you live with yourself? And I think that's where, as a parent, it's very important to define that right away. At that point, you are convincing yourself as you go that if something does happen, God forbid, you were not the cause of it. And I think that's very important because I just couldn't imagine living with the guilt if you didn't set those boundaries. Yeah, it's a good rule of thumb, I guess, you know. Can you live with the consequences? You know, you can say that's what I'm going to do, but at the end of the day, is that going to help you? Possibly. It's hard. It's very difficult. So the whole enabling thing comes down to just the human instinct. You're battling that human instinct, and that's that's tough to overcome. You're right, and I've never necessarily thought of it, I guess, in those terms, but maybe not with that word. You're definitely instinctive to take care of I, you know, I can't, what would be interesting would it would be to talk to somebody who was an enabler for their parent, because those exist too. And we didn't really even touch on that phenomenon, but it's out there. Oh, it is. Out yeah. There. Yeah. So I, I would love to talk to somebody who had that experience. That would fascinate me. And I, and I know I'm sure I have, but off the top of my head. Well, if there's anybody out there. Yeah. I mean, that's, we got another show right there. Yeah. Flip us. Uh, what is it like? Mail? I know what it's like to wear my parents out, but I don't know what it's like to make those tough decisions on their behalf. So I'd love to talk to somebody and even like a parent, you know, one of my parents will, or both, we should bring on the show at some point so they can kind of share their perspective on it. Yeah. Enabling is a, is a very difficult subject to cover just because at what point are you going to conquer that human instinct to just help and protect a loved one? You know, and it's it's one of those things I just feel strongly that you have to set your own boundaries. You have to know yourself, what you're comfortable with, and you cannot base it off of someone else because, as Tim, as you said earlier, situational. And I have to remember as uh, someone early in recovery and thinking about life now in a different way that although my child doesn't have a substance use disorder, thank God, I could be enabling behaviors that I don't want to enable. Just because, you know, I have to take a look at overcoming that instinct myself, doing the easy thing, just or just wanting to make them happy as opposed to doing the right thing and doing what's best for them. We said it at the beginning, there's such a wide spectrum of... That it. definition doesn't mention drug addiction. Right. And it, it really does. I mean, you can typically, as a parent, enable a two-year-old right. by not stopping a fit. Because they know if they get what they want, they're going to do it again. Right. At two years old, they know that. So that's... It's the early coping skill, crying and all that. That's why we say it's it's a tough decision. So we're going to wrap this one up. If you have uh, 
an example of enabling a parent, or if you have any other stories you'd like to share with us, hit us up on our voicemail or send us an email, and we'd love to hear from you. Law.disorder.ar at gmail.com. Hit us up, and we want to thank everybody for tuning in. Catch us on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify. Stitcher. Tune in. Facebook, Twitter. Share us. Instagram. Maybe we can help somebody. Help us help someone else. Exactly. Sharing is caring. All right. With that, we'll wrap it up. I'm Joe. I'm Tim. Peace. You've been listening to the Law & Disorder Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and Google Play to get new episodes. Please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at ladpodcast.com. Recovery is possible.